Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today I'm talking with Danielle Bodicote, an independent medical statistics and writing consultant. With 12 years experience as a researcher and lecturer and over 80 published papers to her name, Danielle set up a business called Simplified Data and now specialises in helping health professionals like us and researchers with biostatistics and medical writing. She's a statistician and writer all in one and loves to help people with systematic reviews and meta-analysis. What a useful woman to know. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. So one of the massive challenges of private practice for me and for many of the members of our community is how to get our research fix. <laughs> so I really loved the academic side of my clinical psychology doctorate. And I always imagined that I'd keep it up after training. But it is really hard once you've gone it alone and you don't have an academic library. So some of the listeners to this show might be frustrated researchers like me, or they might be therapists and psychologists who put all their energy so far into the clinical side of their work and are only just thinking about doing some research. So I'm hoping today you can share with us some ideas about how we can get started with research and reviews uh, in private practice. But before we dive into that, why should we be doing our own research and reviews? So I think there's loads of really good reasons to do your own research. Um, but at a kind of basic level, it's because of the amount of impact you can have. If you're in practice, you can only see the people that are in front of you on any given day. Um, but also on a personal level, I think it really helps your development. I mean, it's, it widens your skill base a lot. Um, and it's just good for your confidence and knowing that you've done something else in your day. Mm, yeah, I really love that because we're all about impact in this community. It's all about making the most difference that we can to the conversation about mental health. Yeah, and obviously when you see people on that daily basis, you're having that impact. But really you can't kind of go on that bigger level of either national or international level, which you can do when you do research. Mm. And I also like what you were saying about it being a way to develop your skill set. I certainly feel more confident in my clinical skills in areas that I've done a bit of research in. Yeah, so it widens your knowledge base and gives you that deeper knowledge, especially if you go sort of particularly deep on a certain topic. Um, but also I think the more you do research and the more you become aware of the methodology, when you're then also reading other people's research papers, you're more confident in what you're reading and mm not all research is created equally so if you're able to see okay well actually that piece is quite good that piece is not so good then you start to know what pieces to take into your own research and to carry forward. That is so important I remember that being a massive takeaway from my doctorate um, it kind of ruined me it felt in a way <laughs> oh, no. um, because anytime <laughs> I read something that could potentially have been exciting I would then start pulling it apart a bit like a vulture um, <laughs> but actually it does give you a lot more confidence um, whether you want to action something that you've read in your clinical practice or whether you, you want to wait until there's a bit more meaningful evidence behind it yeah and I think that's actually a really important point because we learn to do this critical appraisal that most people learn to do as part of their studying and you do become 
overly critical sometimes and no piece of research is perfect so it doesn't mean you should completely discard a piece of research but it's almost how much weight you give to it and it I, I call it the daily mail effect you, know, where <laughs> you hear well today this is good for you and then tomorrow it's bad for you and actually a lot of the time that research will be different qualities so if you're able to know which is a better quality you're more likely to know which one you should take into your practice and which one you should maybe sort of discard a little bit oh I won't probe into it too much but it must be difficult to be you right now with all the COVID-19 <laughs> yes yeah it's been an interesting time it's been um one of those where it's kind of dangerous for how much I know sometimes mm. and and somebody I know is looking at potentially doing a piece into the psychological psychological impact on health researchers because we do know a lot and it's quite hard sometimes to put that to one side mm-hmm. when you're constantly weighing up risk yeah that must be really really challenging yes but then also helpful at the same time because I've studied risk my whole life so it's quite helpful suddenly knowing quite a lot about something that's impacting on everybody's lives yeah I imagine so but I also imagine that you might get lots of questions off people Oh, I do. And sometimes I'm having to say it's not my area of expertise. Mm. I've always worked in chronic diseases rather than infectious diseases. So it's not really my area. Mm. And I think often what you can get from doing your own research is that kind of deep dive where you feel like you do have an area of expertise. I think what's quite hard in private practice a lot of the time is we end up being more generalist than we are when we're in the NHS. Often in the NHS, you are um, working with a specific client group on specific issues. And certainly the roles that I've had, it's been a very specific demographic I've worked with. And usually I've been helping with the same sorts of problems over and over again. Whereas in private practice, my referrals have been much more diverse. Um, Even though I, I market in quite a niche way, I do have a really diverse um, client base, which I love. Um, but I also think it it starts to, after a while, erode your sense of expertise. And that might be actually why I've been craving doing some research. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think because I am a researcher and I've always thought so highly of research, I don't feel like I can always understand a topic properly until I've looked into it myself. And it's interesting, it sounds like there's kind of overlap because I'm a statistician, I work across lots of different therapeutic areas. So I tend to have to know a lot about any condition that I've not heard about before very quickly. Um, So you get used to almost knowing where to go and find that piece of information and that top level understanding of the things you need to know. So I, I want to ask you kind of how to get started, but I suppose... Before that, how do you get the resources that you need as an independent person rather than somebody affiliated to an institution? Because I'm guessing your career so far was probably affiliated to universities, but now you're independent. um, So you must kind of be facing it too. And that's a major sticking point for me and probably many others. Yeah, so... It is um, it is a sticking point and I think it's been a learning curve for me. But actually, there is a lot of information out there. So I think here we're mostly talking about if you're doing your own review and you want to go and find some of that 
information and I think that's if it's a systematic review or like you said if it's just a patient presenting on a different topic and there's loads of open source research out there so Google Scholar is a great place to start and a lot of it is open access Um, do you know how open access works is that is it worth me explaining that? Please bit? explain. Okay. <laughs> so when um, in the olden days of about five years ago, when they used to submit a paper for publication, the journal would um, take all of the kind of the publication costs on and then they would charge out for people to access that publication. And that would either be through a magazine type journal landing for your inbox every month or so, or people paying for specific articles that they wanted. Now, people, when they submit their paper for publication, it gets accepted. They tend to have to pay a fee upfront. It's about £1,500. It's quite a lot. Whoa, for an article? Um, if you, and then that's not for all articles, but that's if you want it as an open access article. And then once it's open access, then people like you or me can just go along and download it without paying some journals insist on open access and so i'm pretty sure bmj is all open access there's quite a lot of high profile ones so basically the journal's still probably getting paid the same amount but it's just shifted who's paying so before it was a reader now it's the person writing it exactly that's it you can see my face to see that deep breath you work for a university or potentially an NHS um, institution, they tend to, a lot of them will kind of pay the open access fee for you or with a lot of the higher profile journals, they'll have um, sort of something in place so that they pay a set fee per year and then all of their publications from that university will then be open access but I don't want that to put anyone off because it doesn't mean that there's no reason that I've not got £1,500 so I can't write a paper because that's not what we want. That sort of goes against everything we believe in in research. Yes, it does. It would just mean that potentially your um, paper wouldn't be open access. So the people reading it might have to pay. But the, because when you have your abstract if people want to pay for it they generally will and a lot of the times the people that would then be reading those papers would actually have free access to the journal anyway so a lot of say again a lot of universities a lot of nhs organizations they all subscribe to these journals so the readers then get the free access that way and that's how the journal gets paid because the organizations are paying for them Okay, so, so it people... seems kind of good and bad. Like I can see the good in um, a lot more papers being available to anyone without having to pay for them. I can definitely, yeah. if, when I was a student, that was a big problem. I wanted to read something and I couldn't. So that's really good. But I can't help but feel like we're going to get less diversity of uh, of writers. Of, yeah, of so I think it's been trying to think it's probably is about five years or so I'd say it's really been on the increase open access and a lot of places um a lot of journals now it is obligatory and you don't have a choice has it affected the diversity yeah it could have done I wouldn't be surprised um but there's other ways you can access papers for free 
as well. So one of the main other ways is if you work for a university, say, and you put your you get your paper accepted by a journal, you also have to put it into the university repository, which sits on their website. And it won't be a formatted version of the paper. It will just be the sort of Word document version. But it's all the same information. And often if you go onto somebody's university website, you can just access that version. So oh, just because clever. it sits behind a paywall on the journal's website doesn't mean it does on the web on the university website. That's really clever. I wouldn't have thought of that. So no, it's quite a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess from my recollection, the last time that I did a systematic review, I had a list of felt infinite, but probably was only about seven databases that I searched. Um, to find the articles I was going to include are those all still the same or have there been <laughs> radical changes as in terms of the databases yeah like where they're probably quite similar um the thing that's most likely to have changed is would you have used PubMed yes okay so PubMed acts as a front end for some databases like Embase and Medline and mm-hmm. um, so you that's PubMed is great if you're working outside an institution because again things like Embase have an access fee but there's also um you would have probably have searched things like Cochrane maybe which yeah okay so it sounds like it's not changed too much (laughs) and so you tend to search um I tend to do a Google Scholar search as well and Cochrane, I'm trying to think of the ones off the top of my head. My mind's gone a bit blank. But yeah, they're, they're generally the ones that you would go for. Okay, brilliant. So it's still the same in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And this is what's nice about research. Once you've got that good basis of methods, it doesn't tend to change that much. I mean, some of the statistics methods I do have been the same for hundreds of years. It's just mm. that we now do it via a computer instead of pen and paper. Mm, yes, I remember um, somebody telling me when they did their um, psychology degree, I think I think they were made to do it undergraduate, they were doing things like writing out by hand. How yeah, to... that, that's how I learned in my undergraduate degree. Wow. I used to have to write like massive matrices and then flip them around and it was just pages of sort of numbers and, yeah. and See, I, I think that's it, amazingly. <laughs> I think it's really cool and actually it gives you a much deeper understanding of what you're doing when you put those numbers into SPSS or some kind of package that does it for you. Um, Because often I find anyway that I can't speak about my research unless I understand what that model was trying to do. I think I'm possibly a bit pedantic like that but I have to understand what was going on inside the model (laughs) no that's great that's music to my ears that's what (laughs) I like to hear so this is why we always say that you'll never be able to take humans out of doing statistics Mm. because the things like SPSS and other statistical packages they can fit those models for you but without having a human to understand the nuance of it and to actually select the right model in the first place and then interpret the results you the computer can't do it by itself we still need you to understand what you're doing as well yeah yeah I think that's really important so where would you start then if, if you were like us a um, health professional thinking right I, I want to do a review where would you get started I would start with your idea and working out what your research question is 
so it's really important first of all that the question that you're looking at is something that needs to be answered so I always sort of say to people like try and think about your why and really want to be trying to do a review that is going to impact on practice I mean we're talking about impact and if it's something that nobody wants to know then there's no point in looking at it in the first place so the best questions and the ones that you are faced with in practice on a fairly regular basis that you actually don't know what to do you don't know how to kind of the best way forward on that and you want some evidence to back it up Mm. and then with your review you can go out and hopefully get that evidence that seems really important for a couple of reasons like firstly because it'll make a better paper but also because I remember from doing these things that there's a point in the middle where you feel like you're going to die and (laughs) and progress gets really slow and it gets hard and knowing that you're doing it for yourself your clinical practice as well as for all the other good reasons to do research might be the thing that gets you to the finish line. Yeah. Oh, no, I completely agree. I mean, if you just look at statistics theory, it's so dull. I only love it because of what it's applied to. And I'm really interested in health. So if you're not interested in what it's applied to and what you're trying to research, you're going to lose interest. Mm. Okay. so what's the next step from there then once you're confident on your question? Okay. so the other really good thing to do is to write a protocol. There's some great guidance out there. There's one called Prisma. Um, which I would sort of direct you to that website and that protocol helps you to really set out what it is you're going to do so so why you want to do it what your methods will be what your approach will be and it will help you to get clear on your thinking and then you won't believe the amount of time it saves you by that bit of planning up front rather than kind of keep having to go back to the beginning because you realize you forgot to do something or you missed the step out. Mm, yeah actually I think I used Prisma um, and although it looked really intimidating when I clicked on it I was like oh god what is this and it did save time so I'd done one without a protocol and I'd frequently I'd get to like study 12 or something and be like oh I wish I'd looked at this for all the others (laughs) and then have to trawl back through I mean that's another important thing just on the research question Mm it's really easy to divert off and think oh that looks interesting that looks interesting but I tend to say to people stick to at most three research questions but really if you can get it down to one you're going to have a much easier happier time and if you do have more than one pick one that's your main one because Mm. again it will just make your life easier and you'll know what you're looking for when you're reading all of these papers you're not having to read everything in the same amount of depth Exactly. And it helps you to narrow down what you're searching for in the first place. If you run some wide search criteria, then you'll end up with tens of thousands of hits come back and you'll have to read through all of those titles, all of those abstracts, and you'll just stop before you start. So the more specific you can be, the better review you'll end up with, because if it's clear to you, it'll be clearer to people that want to read it as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you sort out your question and your methods and then (laughs) (laughs) and then you have to go for it so I always (laughs) you want to assemble a team it's not got to be a massive team but in theory you can do it by yourself but with everything you tend to do better if you've got the experts in Mm. and the 
expertise that you're bringing is around your clinical expertise and you can still very much lead it and lead from the front but if you can just make sure you've got some different people in that will help so I tend to say if you've got expert which well sorry access to a librarian mm. that can really help I was completely naive when I first started and I thought librarians just sort of told you where a book was in a library <laughs> but actually they're great they they know so much about these searches and they'll help you sort of set up your search terms so if you don't know what things like boolean operators are your librarian can explain all of that to you and they also know a lot of the other words they use so you know like american spelling say mm-hmm. to make sure you capture everything so, so where i don't do know you if find you'd, those i was going to say i don't know whether you'd have access to librarians so mm-hmm. If you're based within any kind of NHS organisation, you'd have access to a clinical librarian. If you're in independent practice, which I think a lot of your listeners are, then it's a bit harder, but some public librarians do have this sort of knowledge and they'd probably quite like it as a change of something to talk about. So it's always worth a chance. And there's people like me, so because I do this kind of stuff all the time, I, I know how these searches tend to work and I wouldn't fully know all of the different clinical terms but then that's where you guys come in so we'd work together to come up with that search strategy. Okay because I was thinking I'm not sure at my local library they would know about that but I do um, there in Exeter there is a branch of the British Library. Um, yeah so it'd probably be everything. more city libraries. Mm. And also some university libraries do let you in. So it's always worth kind of checking out your local university to see what they're like as well. Mm, That's a good point, actually. I found whenever I've made contact with my local university, they've been really helpful um, because they're interested in innovation and they might get their name on something (laughs) if they're helpful enough. (laughs) So, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's really useful. Um, So you need a bit of a team. Is there anyone else you need in your team? Yes, so a statistician, unsurprisingly. Um, (laughs) So there's two types of research very broadly. So you can have number-based research, which is quantitative, or more text word-based research, which is qualitative. So when you're doing your review, you can do either. You can do a qualitative review or a quantitative review. If you're going for a qualitative review and you haven't done qualitative research before, then you need a qualitative researcher involved. And likewise, if you're doing quantitative and you're doing something numbers based, you'll need a statistician involved because once you've done your review and you've got all of those papers back, you'll need to summarise them in some way. And that's where your qualitative researcher or your statistician will be able to help. Mm, Yeah, but you want them in near the beginning. (laughs) Although they don't summarise to the end, they'll be able to help you with your planning. And again, they'll be able to make sure you know what data you're extracting and that you're pulling out all of that information that you need to save you going back again. I like the idea of having a team. I think the problem when you're doing something um, like your doctoral research is I I had a supervisor who helped me a lot with the stats. He was brilliant. But other than that, it felt a bit lonely. And, And actually, the librarian is absolutely fantastic at Salomon's as well. So I did have those people, but it felt like the weight of responsibility was on me the whole time, when actually I like the idea of it being much more collaborative and drawing on other people's expertise. 
I think it's really helpful. And I think with anything, it doesn't matter how much of an expert you are. Sometimes you just need to bounce those ideas off mm. somebody else. And I've done these things so many times, but still there's always another angle and somebody will say something and you think, oh yeah, actually that's a great idea. And it's only when you actually talk them through with people. And again, I come with it from a methodology angle and I've picked clinical stuff up along the way, but I'm not a clinician. So then when I work with people that have got more of that kind of background, it's really helpful because they can say, oh, well, it's really important that we look at this specific population, which I would never have known. Mm. yeah it's it's creativity in numbers isn't it (laughs) exactly and who doesn't like working with people (laughs) yeah so you've got a team now is it the time to actually start like printing and reading and highlighting yes (laughs) (laughs) yes so um at this point, this is when you would start um, so doing your screening for your titles and abstracts. And usually you would do two passes. So your first pass would be where you would go through and you'd look at your titles and abstracts to see whether or not they fit your inclusion criteria, which will be beautifully specified within your protocol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you do that, you can usually involve a second person. So that can be somebody else within your existing team so your statistician or whoever or it can be another person that you get to your team and there's different ways you can do it so basically you want to to do a systematic review we're making sure we're as objective as possible so we want to say that actually if somebody else did this exact same review they'd come to the same conclusion and that's why we want to involve two people here so you can either do it completely separately and then come together and cross match which ones you, which titles and abstracts you decided were going through to the next stage. Or one of you can do it. And then the second one, just cross check and just say, okay, that looks sensible. That doesn't look sensible. And then you talk about any disagreements you have. In practice, the second one happens more. So it's more often that one person does it and somebody else checks it because let's face it we're all busy nobody wants to kind of sit and do all this double work if we can help it yeah I was going to say you have to find somebody for that job who cares as much as you do about this subject that cares as much and potentially hasn't got as much to gain because if you're writing the paper and going on as first author okay they might get second author on it but they're not as emotionally and sort of what's the word but they just haven't got as much investment in it as you have yeah I mean I'm hoping actually that that's something that the Dean Warden Therapy community and the membership will help people connect up people who share a passion for something and yeah maybe... I mean that would be fantastic yeah because I think there there are a lot of us that want to do this stuff but we maybe struggle with getting the right people around us and getting that support that enables you to kind of push forward with it well that's certainly been my experience anyway yeah, I mean, one of the things that works really well is if you have two people doing a review and then you act as second reviewers and swap on each other's. Mm. And then you get a good second reviewer for your review, but actually you also end up as a second door from somebody else's as well. So that works quite nicely. It might work quite nicely in your membership as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea, actually, because for a lot of things, there are two obvious questions that need answering. Um, but it'd be better to separate those out anyway. Yeah, I mean, that would work a lot better. Like, I know I said you can have one research question, 
and separate it out and act as second reviewers. That's a great way of doing it. Hmm. Excellent. Good stuff to be thinking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what happens then? You've done all of the reading and the highlighting. Yeah, so we've done the first pass and then we would do a second pass, which is pretty much the same. But this time we're actually getting hold of those full copies of the paper and going through. So the first pass is really just to rule out anything that definitely doesn't fit. So, I mean, you'll end up with like animal studies and all sorts that you're not particularly interested in, maybe. So they just go in the first pass um, and then the ones that make it through, you then got to go into more detail. So this is where we're kind of trying to find those open access papers, the ones that might be on the repositories. Um, there's a great website called deepdive.com, which has got a subscription fee, but it's not particularly high. And using that, you can access a lot more papers as well. Oh, so that's really good. Tip. That's, yeah, it's deep dive, dive with a Y um, okay. rather than the I. Yeah. And then... Um, yeah, so you'll get all your papers and you'll go through and you'll work out which ones want to go through to the next stage. Brilliant. And so going on from that, is that you putting stuff into tables? <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's where you start extracting the data. Yeah. So again, this is where your statistician would be able to really help you just in terms of which data you need to extract. Brilliant. The amount of people that have got to this stage and have basically almost rewritten the paper. They just take every bit of information out, put it into this gigantic Excel sheet, and then yeah, turn guilty. up and give me, say, <laughs> like, can you do something with this? <laughs> and they've, they've just wasted so much time that they didn't have to do. Um, so that's where you put from somebody who can tell you exactly what it is you need to pull out. Okay, cool. Um, and from there, I guess, maybe this is where we start doing some statistics. Yeah, exactly. And it depends on your own comfort level. Some people really like getting into the numbers and doing it. And there is, you can, if it's quite a simple meta-analysis, you can do it yourself. You might need some guidance, but you are able to. Other people don't want to know, and that's equally as fine. Get somebody else to do it for you. I think it just depends on where you like to be. Mm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like for me personally, I, I like to understand it. So I kind of like to get in there, but I then don't have any confidence in what I produce. So yeah. would I give a talk based on some stats that I generated? No, <laughs> definitely not. Even though I would have really want to be involved with doing it, I can't imagine that I'd ever be confident without somebody else who knows what they're doing, having you know done their thing on that data so a good statistician even if you haven't done the work when they're giving it back to you they should make sure that you understand exactly as what's happened and how to interpret it so you would be happy to stand on the stage in front of hundreds of people and talk about those results that's where we kind of want you to be and mm. um, but equally I mean the kind of thing I do is I coach people through these sorts of things and train them as we go so that you can get those skills and you, you do feel confident that at the end of it you know enough that you know to check for the errors and you know where the errors might be so that when they're not there and you can say actually I have done that right because I think that's where people lose confidence a little bit because these packages will always run and they'll always give you an answer you don't always know whether or not what you've done is the right thing mm. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so once you've you've done all of that and you've got your stats, then writing time, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, write in time, write it into a nice summary. And again, there's guidance out there on what to include. So if you look at things like Prisma, they've got nice little checklists of what should be included in there. But again, just look at other people's. I mean, they always say when you're writing a novel that you should read a lot, don't they? And it's the same if you're writing a research paper, read other people's research papers, see what comes across clearly, see what's confusing and sort of take the best bits of that and reword it for your papers Mm. yeah Uh, I suppose there probably isn't a standard length but could you give any idea of how long the finished paper every journal will have its own um length so if you go onto the journal that you want to that's kind of your aspirational one that you want to submit to if you go on to their website there'll be author guidelines and on the author guideline there'll be a strict word count And often there's a word count for each section. So there'll be one for the introduction, say, one for the methods and so on. Oh, that's really good to know. So before you write, it's actually a very good idea to know what journal you think it would fit in best. (laughs) Definitely. There's always that that IMRAD instruction, methods, research and discussion structure. But often they'll have subheadings in there that are slightly different for each Mm. journal. So it's worth kind of going on and just seeing because otherwise you end up having to reformat your paper later on. Yes. So I, I nearly always write with a target journal in mind. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. such a waste. There's actually a movement to try and get it so that when you first submit it, you can actually just do it as a generic paper to save all of that reformat in time. But it never seems to take off, which is a shame. I think the authors really want it and the journals don't. Yeah, and the other thing is standardising reference style. Why on earth would we not do that? It just seems like it's sucked many hours of very clever people's time who could be doing important things like finding coronavirus vaccines. (laughs) I agree, it's such a waste. I mean, it's fascinating with the coronavirus um, research and how quickly it is all coming out. I think it's shame what can be done. Yeah, yeah, I really agree with that, actually. I saw somebody talking on the news this morning. I thought, oh, my gosh, they've done that already. And it does show. I think there are all these unnecessary roadblocks um, which are are holding good research back a lot of the time. Yeah, I agree. So I suppose you've probably come across some quite uh, amusing pitfalls that people have fallen into but what are the most common mistakes that people make when they set out to okay so I've actually got a whole e-course on yes, the most common mistakes <laughs> oh good thank you um just because it they come up all the time the gigantic spreadsheet is a big one because it's it's kind of heartbreaking when someone comes along and they've done all of that work and I have to tell them that actually they could have probably done about a quarter of it and then they've still got to go back and do some more because somehow they've still managed to miss the little bit that they did need. Um, that's a big one. Not writing down as you go. So at the end, you have to do, um, when you do the Prisma checklist, you have to do a flow chart, which shows how many um, titles you screen, for example, how many full papers, why certain ones got excluded and so on. So you have to have really good records as you go. It doesn't take anything fancy. It can just be an Excel spreadsheet. 
but I have literally got to the end of one when I did my very first systematic review got to the end realized I hadn't got all of those numbers I needed and I had to go right back to the beginning and search again and it was yeah soul destroying (laughs) ouch yeah I also I remember because I'm a massive massive geek (laughs) that I liked looking back at that for reassurance you know when you get to the end and you're like you know you've been working on it for months and you're like did I do this rigorously enough or would would that if I replicated it would there be stuff that I'd miss and then looking back at those diagrams and being like oh no okay at each stage I made sensible decisions based on set criteria I found deeply yeah. calming <laughs> <laughs> no that sounds good I like that approach <laughs> so I guess it's probably been quite a leap for you going from working as a lecturer and being affiliated with a big institution to striking out on your own do you mind if we talk a little bit about what that was like for you no and actually interestingly it was a leap but I took a detour along the way so oh what was your detour and so I actually went to work for a really big company I'm not sure if I can can I say names on here uh I don't know so maybe okay so I won't then um so I, I have three children. They're age one, three and five. And every time I go on maternity leave, I seem to have some sort of career change. And I think <laughs> I have too much time to think <laughs> about what it is I want to do with my life. <laughs> so after my second baby, I came back and decided that actually academia really wasn't for me. I found it that I was basically trying to do three full-time jobs in part-time hours. Mm. it was really hard so I wasn't sure what I was I wanted to do and I wasn't sure whether it was actually the health side of things that I'd lost interest in or if it was academia so I went to go and work for another company just to go and see what industry was like for a little bit and it was great I absolutely loved it that's why I don't mind mentioning the name (laughs) (laughs) it was good um, so I went to go and work with somebody else and I realized whilst I was there that actually it is the health that is the side that I really like it's what I've always been passionate about and it really helped me to find that focus again Mm. so as much as I liked working there I liked working there because of the team and the environment and so on but the actual work just didn't sort of make me jump out of bed in the Mm. morning but at that point I didn't really want to go back to academia either Um, and so when I had my third baby (laughs) and I was on maternity leave I really kind of got to thinking about what it was actually if I could do anything what would I want to do and having my own company and doing my own research whilst also helping other people to do their research just felt like really what I wanted to be doing with my time mm-hmm. and I really it's a bit like you said about having the impact I felt like I could have more impact that way and okay it's indirect because I'm helping other people have their impact but that's fine with me I'm quite excited about that yeah and you can really see that you can see that you've got a lot of passion for what you're doing now and I imagine it must be pretty awesome to be able to have that much control over what you do and who you help it is. And I, look, I love teaching, but I'm not really into that traditional teaching environment. So I really like that I get to do that kind of one-to-one training with people and 
really see it when I mean I've even today I've got messages through from somebody saying whoop 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 I figured it out (laughs) (laughs) that's what I want I want to have those sort of days where you think oh great I've done that today (laughs) yeah that sounds like an amazing feeling if you can give somebody that breakthrough I get it now kind of moment that must be amazing exactly and that's something to do with cardiovascular health which I'm not working on today but then I think oh I've had a little impact in the cardiovascular world today just through that so that's nice yeah that's really cool so on this kind of long journey with some details in it what has has been the most surprising or inspiring moment I think um do you know what one of the most inspiring things and I never thought I'd say this my husband is the world's biggest pessimist honestly (laughs) like just anything he would just be pessimistic about and then when Covid hit which so I started in October with my own business Mm. so I was still pretty new and then Covid hit and in April just all work dried up and I, I didn't know where I was going to be going or what I could do. And he was so optimistic. It was untrue. And actually, that just gave me such a motivation. That I thought, OK, if I can make it through COVID, because I really believe in this. I really believe in what I'm doing. If I can make it through this, then I'll be flying. But I think it was him going from being so pessimistic to optimistic that really inspired me to keep going because I thought well god if he believes in it then great (laughs) yes it's almost like you got your confidence from seeing that reflected in somebody else yes yeah and then it it has I mean where are we now June and it's already completely turned back around so it's great yeah that's amazing yeah I think there are a lot of stories that are really impressing me about resilience in COVID-19 and there's so many lessons for a lot of us um, to take away from it and it's really nice to hear that it's kind of given you a bit more confidence in your business. Yeah yeah I definitely think it has and I think I mean obviously it's just been a, a devastating time and that's never going to go away but I think we've all got to take what we can out of it and kind of try and get those positives because we can't kind of carry on with it just being a devastating time can we because it will run us all down so if we can find those positives where we can then that's how we'll cope yeah I really agree so I've got a bit of a selfish question (laughs) (laughs) so for psychologists and therapists like me listening to this what two action steps would you want them to go away and do now I think it would be go away and have a think about what question you would want to know so when you've got your daily practice what is it that always niggles at you that you think oh if I could just know that and then just try and get those ideas and do a bit of internet searching and just see has anybody else done it before and if they haven't then actually that might be a really good idea for a review even if somebody has done it before it doesn't mean they've done it well so you might still be able to do it yeah or if you think something might have significantly changed in the field exactly yeah if it needs updating all you'll need to do don't when you're doing your paper don't ignore that previous review Mm. and just explain why you've then done another one and as long as you can justify that that's fine Mm. okay so thank you so much for speaking to me today you've shared so much valuable stuff and I feel really inspired actually to um, get cracking that have been the back burner for too long 
Um, but it's also really awesome to know that there are people like you out there um, that we can get into our team to help us. Yes, with oh, please do. I'd love to come and work with you all. Um, so I've also, like I mentioned before, so I've got a free e-course. It's really informal. It's not anything to kind of worry about signing up to. It's hopefully quite chatty emails from me. Um, Very chatty. every day for a week I like people to learn through examples and so on and it will stick with you more rather than we've all got textbooks we don't go and read them and so yeah I'd love to kind of be part of your team in that way as well and that's just on my website if people want to get it and that is simplifieddata.co.uk. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I do. I really recommend it, actually, because I think if you are sitting there and you've got this idea, but you need a bit of a kick to get started with it, then having something like that coming into your inbox every day is really valuable. I think it's a really great format for it. Um, and oh, I got a lot you. out of it, even though I haven't quite taken the leap to starting my review yet. Um, it really got me thinking and got those creative juices flowing which I think is yeah. really well you can always save it for when you are at that point can't you but yeah hopefully yeah, you'll see lots of um, good research coming out of the group I'm looking forward to it yeah yeah me too I really hope so um so also I noticed that you're quite active on LinkedIn um, yes people want to connect with you is it at Danielle Bodycoat it's Bodycoat yes which is spelt really strange it's B-O-D-I-C-O-A-T um, and I'll put all the links that you've mentioned in the show Oh, lovely, notes. thank you. Yeah, so that people can click through and find those really easily. But yeah, come, come chat to me on LinkedIn. I like to have a chat on there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.